welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 98. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together. Before the Lord, for he cometh to judge the earth. With righteousness shall he judge the world and the people with equity. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let's pray. O God, who hast made known thy salvation amongst the peoples, by revealing thy righteousness in the sight of the Gentiles, show unto us the abundance of thy mercies, that as we are lifted up by the knowledge of thy salvation, we may be comforted by the revelation of thy righteousness. Wherefore we say, Glory be to the Father, the Lord and King. Glory be to the Son, his own right hand, who shall judge the world with righteousness. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, who declared the salvation of God, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. Well, we continue to work our way, explaining uh, the structure of our liturgy. Last week, we looked at the confession of, of sin, and this morning, uh, we'll look at and explain the confession of faith. Uh, why do we confess our faith in the worship service? When the early church was established by the apostles, there were no uh, nice church buildings like this for them to meet in. Instead, we see the apostles teaching in the temple, in the Jewish synagogues, and from house to house. Since Christianity was the fulfillment of the Jewish religion, it was important for the Christian church to distinguish itself from those who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. This was doubly important in regions where Christians and Jews might be meeting in the same place. One of the ways of marking this difference between Jews who believed in Jesus and Jews who rejected him was by considering only as Christians those who made the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is, Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. This confession was the dividing line between what the Bible calls true Jews who are circumcised in their hearts 
and false Jews who observed all the externals of Mosaic religion but lacked faith in the Lord Jesus. This early creed or confession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord became one of the essential marks of salvation. As Paul says in Romans 10, 9-10, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Just as the early church made confession unto salvation, so also do we. Just as the early church made confession to distinguish themselves from unbelievers, so also do we. When we recite the Heidelberg Catechism, which we will finish in a moment, and when we start to recite the Nicene Creed next week, we confess these words to distinguish ourselves from those who deny the Orthodox faith. These creeds and confessions are not spoken as a substitute for Scripture, but rather as an explanation of what Scripture teaches. In an age where heresy and false teaching masquerades as Christian truth, confessing these creeds and confessions functions with a dual purpose. First, it teaches us what Scripture teaches and gives us a shared vocabulary to understand that truth. Second, it draws the boundary lines for our communion and fellowship with other believers. These creeds, then, are a practical manifestation of our spiritual unity in Christ. Together we kneel to confess our sins, and together we stand to confess the forgiveness we have in Christ. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so as you're able, let us kneel before the Lord. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. For you are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Sermon text this morning is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. These are the words of God. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men." And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. 
Father, your word says that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath ever seen you, but the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And so give us now ears to hear that declaration of grace and truth. For we ask in the name of Jesus, and amen. Amen. Well, in God's providence, we arrive at Philippians 2, 6 to 11 on Christmas Day. Uh, this passage is a, uh, what you would call a locus classicus on the incarnation. It, it is a classic text and one of the most important uh, proof texts for establishing that Jesus is fully God and fully man. I say without exaggeration that this doctrine together with who God is as Trinity, is the single most important doctrine there is. Our entire faith stands or falls based on who Jesus is. Is he God or is he not? Is he man or is he some kind of superman? If you answer those questions wrong, if you make a mistake here, there will be downstream consequences and errors that result. So um, I want to warn you this morning that uh, this sermon is going to be uh, a bit more theological than uh, most of our sermons, I think. Um, But I make no apologies for this uh, because doing this kind of theology is the highest act of your intellect. Without it, you cannot actually know who you are worshiping. And so carefully doing theology like this is part of how we keep ourselves from idolatry. It is how we keep ourselves from false ideas about who God is. There are many people, many people who claim the name of Christian, who profess to know God. It still says on American dollar bills, last time I checked, in God we trust. Um, But do Christians really trust in the God of the Bible? (laughs) I don't know. It seems more like they trust in the God named Mammon. The God that many people claim to know, the Jesus that many people claim to follow, is not really the same God or same Christ that we find in the scriptures. They might go by the same name. They might even say the name Jesus a lot. They might have Christian church out on the sign of their building. But the Jesus that many people know and claim to follow is no Jesus at all. What they are actually worshiping is a construct of their own imagination, a projected composite of ideas, some of them from the Bible, but many of them not. More than likely, you and I also have some of these false ideas in our mind as well. And so uh, the only way to safely proceed, if we would uh, want to not be idolaters, and none of you should want to be idolaters, the only safe way to proceed then is to open the scriptures and submit ourselves wholly unto them. Whatever we find in here, we receive as true. As Christians, we take as a first principle of our faith that God wrote this book and he does not lie. And so everything that we find here is inspired, it is authentic, it is, as Paul says, God-breathed and therefore without contradiction. The work then 
that we are going to do in this sermon, that you are going to do in your intellect, is the work of a theologian. The work of our intellect, as we read the Bible, is to hold together every single verse in here, allowing the Bible to speak at the same time, and not pressing mute on a single verse. We receive the entirety, the symphony of Holy Scripture as one song, one unified story that tells of the glory of God. That's what theology is. That is the work of theology. Theology, we would say, is getting in tune with reality. It teaches you how to live and believe in the world that actually is, not in the fantasy world that atheists and unbelievers dwell in. Theology is coming to believe that things are, certain things are, and then coming to understand how it is that they are so. And we'll do kind of both of these in our sermon this morning. So that is what we're seeking to do. And the way I want to proceed is by arranging this sermon according to four different questions. And these are just four very simple questions of meaning. What does this phrase or this this word mean? So here's the four questions we're going to ask and answer as follows. And children, uh, I will ask you one of these questions uh, when you leave and and get chocolate, okay? So so pay attention, all right? Uh, The first question we're going to ask and answer is, what does being in the form of God mean in verse 6? The second question is, what does thought it not robbery to be equal with God mean? Also in verse 6. The third question we'll ask is, what does made himself of no reputation, uh, or some of your translations might have emptied himself. What does emptied himself mean uh, in verse 7? And then the fourth question, uh, what does being found in fashion as a man mean in verse 8? Uh, that's, that's where we're going. If you didn't write all those down, that's, that's totally fine. So let's start with our first question here. What does being in the form of God mean? And form in Greek here is morphe. So you can think of like someone morphing. That, that's where we get this idea. Uh, let me just read again verses 5 and 6 so we have this text before, uh, before us. Starting in verse 5, Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So what's the context? You'll remember uh, the context is Paul impressing upon the Philippian church the need for love, humility, like-mindedness in the church. And here now he's going to give us the kind of theological reason why we need to be humble. Why should we be humble? Why should we love one another? And his argument begins with, Christ Jesus being in the form of God. Well, what is this form? When most people hear the word form, uh, they tend to think of the shape or external appearance of a thing. And they think of that form as distinct from its material substance, what it actually is. So uh, to take an example, maybe you are making cookies, the dough is the substance, the form is, you know, the shape of the gingerbread man or the star or whatever it is that you are impressing on the dough, okay? So you have the form, the, the, little, um, the little stamp, and then you have the dough, which is the actual, the cookie that you're going to, to make. So that's, how, that's one way of thinking about a form. Or uh, to give you another example, 
around this time of year, if you've been to any store, you have seen uh, perhaps many men uh, taking on the form of Santa Claus. So they are, they are we know, uh, children, they are not Santa Claus, that, that strange man you took a picture with, uh, but they ta- they've taken on the form or the appearance of Santa Claus. So those are different ways of thinking about the word form. And uh, just, just so you know, if you think that's what Paul means here, uh, you're a heretic. Okay, So, so we're not, we have to lay these certain uh, definitions out and then negate them and say, it's not like that, it's not like that, it's not like that. It's not like, it's not like that. For those of you uh, who might be more philosophical, I'm thinking of all our, our classically educated young children here, uh, when you hear the word form, you might think of Plato's world of forms, uh, which is kind of this, this realm outside of time and space. So Plato didn't really think you could get reality by your senses, but there was this world of forms that was really real, and then everything here is kind of more or less a participation in that form in in his world of of heaven, so to speak. So for Plato, your senses cannot actually grasp the forms, the form of the good, the form of the beautiful. Those are uh, in this world of forms somewhere. Uh, Now, Aristotle uh, famously rejected Plato's world of forms, and he argued that forms do not exist independently of their nature or substance. So for Aristotle, a form is the real nature, the essence of a thing. So to give you an example, let's take this wood pulpit. Uh, For Plato, there is an immaterial form called wood and pulpit, and this thing here uh, more or less participates in these uh, forms of, of woodness and pulpitness. And that's the only way your, your immaterial intellect can only actually know this if it grasps those forms up there. Uh, for Aristotle, however, he believed that you could actually look at this, feel it, s- smell it. If it, sm- if it. I don't know what it smells like. I haven't smelled it yet. Uh, but but we, we could feel it, touch it. I could use it as a pulpit, and I could know, based on my empirical senses, that this is a wood pulpit. Okay, so you you can decide who is more in tune with reality, Plato or or Aristotle here. Uh, What about the Apostle Paul? When it comes to Paul's usage of form here in this verse, he means not just the external appearance, like Santa Claus. He does not mean some spiritual world of forms. He rejects Plato. What he means is something much closer to what Aristotle believes, which is the form is the very nature, the very essence of a thing. For Aristotle and for Paul here, the form is what the thing is. So for Christ to be in the form of God means that Christ has a fully divine nature. His form or essence is divine. Now, I know this is some deep metaphysics we're doing right now. We're going to keep going. Here we go. Whereas you and I are in the form of human, right? We have a human nature. Our existence is distinct from our essence. Okay, this is a major, uh, major line in philosophy and metaphysics, existence and essence. So uh, think about this. I, Aaron, exist as Aaron. And my essence is human nature, 
But those are two distinct things because I am not the sum total of human nature. Uh, neither are you, right? So the, the essence of human nature is something that all of us have as our existence uh, and also our, our essence, right? So we, uh, the, the existence is the individual substantiation of it, and the essence is the thing that we share. That's how it goes for creatures, for things that are composed of parts, body and soul. Uh, but God is what theologians call uh, not composite. God is not made of parts, God is not the sum total of his attributes. God is one. Um, in theological terms, we say God is simple. And we don't mean simple like you're dumb. We mean simple like just not composed of parts. God is not like 10 Legos that you stuck together and made to one you know, little house. That's not what God is. That, that is what we are like. So for God, God's essence is his existence. And this is only true of God. God is this one being who is really being beyond being, whose existence is his essence. So Paul is saying that all that God is, all that God reveals himself to be in the Old Testament, Christ is. That is what being in the form of God means. This is made even more explicit in the next phrase, which says, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So to be in the form of God must mean that you are equal with God. And more on this in a moment. In verse 6, we must also not overlook the sense of this little word, being. When Paul says, being in the form of God, he forces us to conclude that Christ was God even prior to the incarnation. In other words, Christ never started to be God. He was always God, is presently God, and continues to be God. Being in the form of God, then he took on human flesh. Certain key truths flow from this reality. The first is that Christ is the eternal Son of the Father. According to his divine nature, Christ always exists as God. This is why Jesus can say in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. How can he say that? It is why Jesus can say to Nicodemus in John 3.13, No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Now, this is a crazy verse. Jesus is walking around on earth, He's having conversations with people. He's talking to Nicodemus, and yet, according to his divine nature, he says, the Son of Man, which is in heaven. So we have to hold all of these verses together. The Son of Man is presently in heaven, and Jesus is walking around on earth. How can this be? These verses forced the church after many uh, arguments with heretics, to conclude that Jesus Christ is one person. He's not one person walking around on earth and then also one person walking around in heaven. There's not two persons. There's just one person, but he has two natures. One nature that is eternal, omnip om omnipotent, omnipresent, divine, and another nature that is human and not divine limited by time and space, 
that he added to himself when he was conceived in Mary by the Holy Ghost. Being in the form of God, he took on human flesh. The second key truth we must conclude from this is that Christ is equal to the Father. Both possess the divine nature equally. The Father is God as font and source, and the Son as stream. As Jesus says in John 5, 26, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. Who is the Son? The Son is the Word from the Father and the image of his invisible form. Christ is the one who reveals the triunity of God. What was only gestured at in the Old Testament, think of Genesis 1, let let me make man in our image. Let us, it says. Let us make man in our own image. Uh, The word for God in Hebrew is Elohim, which is literally God's. So what's going on with this plurality in God? Well, we don't We don't know this explicitly in the Old Testament, but Christ comes and makes this explicit in the New. In Christ, we come to a heightened revelation of the true nature of God, the plurality of the divine persons and their unity of nature. Christ is the doorway to the whole Trinity. He is the way to the Father and the giver with the Father of the Holy Ghost. All right, those are just some of the implications of that little phrase, being in the form of God. All right, let us continue on. Second question, what does thought it not robbery to be equal with God mean in verse 6? This is kind of just hard to understand because of the way it's phrased. Uh, But to answer this, let's think of the, the converse, the opposite. What would it look like for someone to rob God by thinking themselves equal to him. Think about your your Bible. Has anyone ever tried to do this? Has anyone ever aspired to be equal with God? Well, uh, the prime examples of this, of course, are the devil and also uh, you and me. (laughs) You and me, every time uh, we sin, uh, this was the sin in the garden of Adam and Eve, to to be like God. Uh, We get hints of this original sin of the devil in Isaiah 14, which is this kind of oracle against the king of Babylon. And it says this, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. The original sin of Satan was to elevate himself above God. This is what we would call thinking it robbery to be equal with God. Someone or some created thing thinking they could be equal with its creator. That is robbery. This is the same sin that man commits in the garden. The serpent tempts them by saying, you shall be like God if you eat of this tree. You can be kings who judge what is good and evil. And so man grasps for equality with God. We seek to elevate ourselves 
but instead we fall. And so when Paul says Christ Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God, he is saying that unlike Satan and unlike Adam, Christ Jesus is actually God. It is not robbery for Christ to think himself as such because he is. And then the logic of the argument goes, if the one who was truly in that high and elevated position humbled himself, then how much more should we? Our problem is always thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. If you just know that, it will make uh, understanding your life a lot better. Uh, Your problems in your marriage, your problem with your children, your problem with you is you think of yourself more highly than you ought. And this is not what Christ did, and so we should look to him as our example. All right, third question. What does made himself of no reputation mean in verse 7? I mentioned the ESV and other translations go with emptied himself here, uh, which which is fine, provided you understand it correctly. Uh, But this translation could suggest uh, many heretical things. So again, we need to be careful here. And in my experience, uh, this is one of the places where especially evangelicals are at the formal level heretical in their understanding of of the incarnation. So um, if you've ever heard of the word kenosis or kenotic theory, it comes from uh, the Greek word here in verse 7, ekenose, which means to make empty or to uh, divest. And the question is, what does Christ empty or divest himself of? So think about how you want to answer that question. And uh, I will start by giving you the heretical answer, uh, and then we'll, we'll look at the orthodox one. The heretical answer is that Christ empties himself of his divinity. He comes to earth, he lays aside his divine nature, and becomes just a man. Uh, this is heretical for many reasons. I'll give you just three. Uh, number one, there are some things God cannot do. Children, there are some things that God cannot do. And one of them is, God cannot stop being God. Just like God cannot lie, God cannot change, he can't change his mind, God cannot stop being God. And so if Jesus is God, he cannot empty himself of his godness. Second reason, if Jesus emptied himself of his divine nature then it would actually be idolatry for the Magi to follow the star to Bethlehem, fall down, and worship the baby in a manger. What's the first commandment? Yeah, in short, no other gods. You worship God and God alone. And if the Magi come and worship a baby in a manger, uh, and it's not God, that is by definition idolatry. It would also be idolatry for Thomas at the end of John's gospel to see Jesus and say, my Lord and my God. Third reason, this is heretical. If Jesus emptied himself of divinity, then Jesus is a liar. And Jesus was lying when he said, before Abraham was, I am. That is the divine name, I am. So Christ did not ever empty himself of his divine nature, nor could he. Uh, That is the heretical interpretation called kenosis. All right, what's the orthodox interpretation? 
the orthodox interpretation is that Christ emptied himself by adding to his person a human nature. For God, who is the fullness of being, subtraction can only happen by addition. And so the emptying of the eternal son refers to his taking on the form, the essence of a servant that is subject to the effects of sin. Christ, as God, cannot die. God cannot die. He is life. But Christ, in his human nature, can. And so as uh, the King James translates Echinose, Christ made himself of no reputation. He became a nobody, though he was God. Christ emptied himself in that he became a servant to sinners. As Isaiah 53 says, He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. God, creator, ruler of all, made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. He took upon the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Fourth and final question. What does being found in fashion as a man mean in verse 8? And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now this, this is rather simple. This simply means that Christ assumed a human nature that is just like ours, except without sin. That's what we say. Christ became, he took on a human nature that is just like ours, except without sin. Christ was subject to sorrow and pain, hunger and thirst. Christ sweated. He had calluses on his hands. His body grew weary from his work as a carpenter. Christ had to sleep. He had to relieve himself just like everyone else. Christ suffered. He suffered the emotional pain of betrayal, of being rejected by his family and friends, of being falsely accused. He was lied about. He was misrepresented. All he ever did was love and good works, and yet his reward was scorn. And Christ really felt that. This is what it means to be found in fashion as a man. Hebrews 4.15 puts it this way, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. We know what it's like to be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. We got to blow our nose because we're sniffly, we get sick, we get tired, your body starts to fall apart. Christ knows what it's like to be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And whereas when, when we are tired, when we are sick and our patience is short, we tend to sin more. Christ knew those things. And Hebrews says, but he resisted unto the shedding of blood. And he says, have we resisted to that level? 
Have we fought against sin to the shedding of blood? Christ knows what that's like. Christ did. I'll close with this. The reason that God took on human flesh was so that he could die. It was the only way that God could die. And Acts 20, verse 28, says this. The church of God was purchased with his own blood. Think about that. The church of God was purchased with the blood of God. God is a spirit, you should say. God has no body. God has no blood. This is true. But according to Christ's human nature, we can say that God died. That God, in Christ, who was found in fashion and form as a man, purchased you by his own blood. The incarnation happened so that God could die for sinners. This is what love looks like. This is what humility looks like. And so I ask us, do you know the love of God? Have you forgotten Christ's love for you? Do do you believe that Christ died and rose for sinners? Well, if so, then confess. Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and you will be saved. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, these are high things, higher than we can attain. God, we confess that we have many false ideas about you in our head. We think of you as a hard taskmaster. We think of you as less good and less loving than you actually are. Father, we take for granted the many ways you have blessed us and yet continue to walk around entitled, proud, thinking of ourselves rather than of others. Father, forgive us for acting this way. Forgive us for our blindness to your many gifts around us and the gift of salvation. And so we ask that, uh, that you would retrain our minds, that when we kneel tomorrow morning and pray and confess our sins, we would not have a false idea about you, but a true one, that we would truly know your character as good and kind. Father, we ask all of this in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. One of the great debates during the Reformation was over the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. In what sense is Jesus here? When we say this is his body and his blood, the Reformed argued against the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans that Christ is present here, not according to his human nature, which is in heaven, but in a special and spiritual way, according to his divine nature. We do not see the physical flesh and blood of Christ here, but we see the visible substance of his invisible word, bread and wine body and blood. These we eat and drink in faith, trusting that Christ is really present here and offers his life for the life of the world. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this, go home or to wherever you are going and rejoice. 
For Christ has come, Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead and bring us all into his kingdom forever. Receive now the benediction. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. And amen. Amen.